Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Remember, folks, we are one of those few places in the U.S. where independent voices and civil dialogue can't occur on the radio dial. I'm Ed Fallon. I'm your host, and we're coming at you from the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. I just love saying that. That's Des Moines, Iowa, of course. Hey, if you value what we do, we could sure use your support. You can visit the donations page on our website, FallonForum.com. And if you run a small business or if you're with a nonprofit doing good work, only good work in the world, uh, then you can also consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway also has excellent catering and floral services. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. And thanks also to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music. And yes, I am a member of that entity. We have a lot of fun. You should too. Irish music. Great stuff, folks. Hey, so what's our lineup this week? Well, we're going to be talking with uh, Caitlin Hanley about midwives who are fighting unfair practices. We'll also be talking with Father Dave Polish about a bishop of Des Moines' legacy of peace that continues to live on. And uh, a big event coming up relevant to that. And finally, for our farm and food conversation, Kathy Burns and I are going to be discussing a bill before the Iowa legislature that would require schools to use butter, not margarine. Interesting stuff. But first, you know, when you think of rogue nations, you know, what country comes to mind? Okay, I won't wait too long because it's a long list and that could eat up most of our time here. But, you know, okay, Russia for sure, right? North Korea, uh, yeah. Hungary, probably, uh, maybe at least for now. Turkey, again, hopefully a, a temporary situation. But it's a long list, all right? But and China may be on your list, but if not, it's time to add China to your list, okay? Because it's not just the big balloon situation we've got going on. It's the big coal situation. So data just out for analysis this week shows that in 2022, last year, China built an average of two new coal-fired power plants every week. And that's the most, you know, you, you think, okay, are they, are they declining? I mean, most of the world is talking about decarbonization, about trying to find a way to power what they need to power without fossil fuels. Well, you, you think, okay, hopefully even that's a decline. It's not. That's the most, in fact, that China has built since 2015. And they show no sign of backing down. They may remain committed to the goal of continued expansion of coal-fired power plants at the detriment of, to their own citizens and to the entire planet. You know, and again, not to let us off the hook, you know, because we've got our problems as well, but China's emissions are over twice that of the U.S., despite these deep promises to cut back. And, you know, I guess that's something... Chinese government officials have in common with many U.S. officials, hate to say it, you know, an inability to tell the truth and to keep, keep one's promise. But, um, yeah, CNN wrote about this, uh, saying, quote, the uptick in the past year is largely attributed to the country's heat wave and drought, uh, which was the worst it had been in close to 60 years. The speed at which projects progressed through permitting to construction in 2022 was extraordinary, with many projects sprouting up, gaining permits, obtaining financing, and breaking ground apparently in a matter of months. Well, I guess that's what you get with a, with a centralized totalitarian communist government, is you get, you get government approval really, really fast. So uh, if you like that, <laughs> then maybe you should consider... Uh, you, never mind. We, we don't want to go there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's bad enough in this country. I'm going to talk later about these pipelines again, by the way. I cannot stop talking about these pipelines because it's very important. But at least here, the process of getting these things permitted is really, really tedious. And in some cases, doesn't happen. Okay, so China, again, coming under a lot of criticism for the uh, coal-fired power plant building binge. So, but, you know, and not, not surprisingly... China's uh, spokespersons were quick to respond, and I, I love this one. Uh, quote, at a time when the world is grappling with an ongoing energy crisis, as the result of the West sweeping sanctions against Russia, some Westerners have constantly sought to find fault by questioning China's coal-fired power plan and the country's ability to achieve its climate goals. 
end of quote. And well, there's so much in that quote that you want to you want to you want to respond to. Okay, grappling with an ongoing energy crisis. How about grappling with an ongoing and worsening climate crisis? How about ongoing an, an ongoing decline in the viability of democracy in many places of the world, probably especially China? And I love the uh, the result of the West sweeping sanctions against Russia, as if Russia did nothing to deserve these sanctions. Come on, okay. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, yeah, I like that. Blaming the West for that. Uh, you know, there's plenty. There's plenty. We have plenty of fault, folks. Yeah. You know, let's look in the mirror. The U.S. and Western countries have plenty of reasons to say, "Oh, shucks, we should have done better." But um, that one just beats that. That was that just astounded me. Again, really not not a surprise, right? Coming from an official spokesman of a rogue nation. So uh, speaking of climate change, you know, more and more people who have been on the fence about these carbon dioxide pipelines are coming to realize that uh, this unholy alliance of the Biden administration with high-ranking Republicans, uh, you know, we're, we're coming to realize that they are lying to us. I mean, a lot of us have known this for a while. Uh, but more and more people see this as for, for what it is, a, a high-powered, uh, high-finance lie to sell us to an idea that is going to benefit a handful of very, very already wealthy corporations and individuals. You know, and again, part of the lie, the, the lie you hear coming more from the Biden side of it is that this is what we need to do to address the climate crisis. We need carbon sequestration. So in comes a new study last week that found out that this brand of carbon capture technology is, well, okay, I just, I'll, read, I'll read a quote from uh, Kurt Davies. He's the director of the Climate Investigation Center. Quote, we're building a taxpayer-financed sewer system for the fossil fuel industry. End quote. That's my kind of quote. I like that. That's, that's, that's powerful, hard-hitting, and, and a very good image as to what's really going on here. So, you know, I mean, we should ask this question. Why was this huge tax credit, I mean, a huge amount of taxpayer money, why was it pushed through by the president and, appro and approved by Congress? Well, again, there are some who thought it might be a climate solution. Uh, and there's some in Congress who just like giving money to their, you know, their, their fellow cronies and some Democrats who do the same thing. And also because the oil and gas industry were pushing really hard for it. Now, surprise, surprise, the oil and gas industry gets what it wants. Well, that's never happened before, right? And sure, they also put a lot of money into campaigns to make sure they get what they want. And again, not just a Democrat, not just a Republican problem. Uh, go see Joe Manchin for details about that. So... Uh, June Sakara, a researcher who's been on this program, oh, I think um, sometime last year. We should have her on again. She's good stuff. She was the uh, lead author of this study I'm talking about. She's a, a visiting scholar at the New School University. And this study looked at both biological and mechanical types of carbon dioxide removal. Biological means trees, wetlands, crops, uh, things, natural things that take carbon out of the atmosphere. Mechanical means, oh, that, that huge um, machine in Iceland that sucks carbon out of the air, which you'd need thousands and thousands to have any small impact at all. Uh, and it means carbon dioxide pipelines. So uh, this quote from uh, the study, uh, quote, in the U.S., biological sequestration is currently removing almost a billion tons, in other words, a gigaton of CO2 per year. Mechanical methods are removing none. The researchers found. And the data show that with further preservation and restoration of forests, grasslands, and wetlands, amplified urban tree cover, and accelerated regenerative agricultural practices, biological methods could sequester at least two gigatons of carbon dioxide per year, or 40% of the five gigatons of CO2 that the U.S. emits annually. That's a lot. The uh, quote concludes saying mechanical methods cannot be scaled up from their present level of zero to even one gigaton per year as economically, swiftly, or safely. So to those who still think, well, maybe this pipeline is needed because it's going to help the climate, wrong. And I, I think there's more and more evidence about that. Okay, so we know that the industry that wants these pipelines is getting desperate because they are really starting to put out stuff that's um, 
that, that, that they hope will convince legislators and others to take their side. The ethanol industry in Iowa just last week, uh, um, they, again, they're supporting the pipelines. Of course, they, they put out um, a study that said that without the carbon dioxide pipelines, ethanol in Iowa and the upper Midwest will be in big trouble of collapse. And uh, interestingly, farmers aren't buying it. Well, again, of course, some are. There, and again, I understand the farming community is divided on this. Some want to do everything they can in their mind to support ethanol. But there are plenty of farmers raising corn, even invested in ethanol plants, who see this as a, as, 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 as a, as a false flag. It's not going to help them. And it's only going to involve having their land forcibly taken for a pipeline that's going to tear up their topsoil, might damage their tiling, um, and also to violate that whole premise that, hey, this is my property. I shouldn't have to have, I, I shouldn't be, be forced to allow a private company to come through and take it for their own benefit. In this case, their own taxpayer-subsidized benefit. But let's move on. <laughs> I got a bunch of things on my mind today. Uh, in other news, um, so three weeks into this Ohio train disaster, the big uh, uh, train that overturned in uh, East Palestine and caused a massive um, uh, chemical spill. So somehow, maybe not surprisingly, that has, that has become a, a partisan issue. And you've got those on the right, especially um, you know, Fox News hero Tucker Carlson, who um, is uh, calling it a racialized lament for the forgotten people abandoned by the uncaring, quote, woke Biden administration. Uh, and again, as people who listen to this program, I'm no, fa- I'm no fan of woke culture, but, you know, most of the rhetoric about wokeness is coming from the right anymore. Come on, just give it up, everybody. Just just lay off. <laughs> so the, uh, the, the, the contention is that, um, that this only happened because of the, the, the Biden administration's inability, uh, their, their, their lack of concern for struggling white conservative communities. And, you know, I just... Really? This is the best you got, Carlson? Come on, really? You know, Carlson described East Palestine as, quote, a poor, benighted town whose people are forgotten and, in the view of the people who lead this country, forgettable. He highlighted the indisputable suffering of local residents who were forced to evacuate a two-mile area and since then have returned home and now remain fearful about the quality of their air and water. Okay, I get it. They should be. And, And this should not have happened. The rail industry should have been more responsible. And, you know, and more into the bigger picture, at what point do we start moving beyond these types of hazards? And I, I understand there are some hazardous materials that are going to be necessary well into the future to assure human health and well-being. But, you know, this should be a question before every, every time we think about whether we should produce a certain amount of a certain toxin, we should say, is this really necessary? Is there not another way to deal with this problem? Small, small example, I don't know what your town is like in the winter, folks, but here in Des Moines, uh, there is an amazing amount of salt dumped on our sidewalks and on our streets to uh, battle, usually a fairly small amount of snow. Uh, and I understand why that, why something might be necessary, but i tell you what, we never, ever, Kathy and I, never, ever salt our sidewalk, and we never have any ice. We never have any slippage. We, we use a shovel or, or, or a broom. It works really well. Now, I'm not saying you can shovel and broom and, and shovel and sweep every street, but come on, let's start finding ways of reducing that chemical, and let's apply that same kind of analysis to chemicals more broadly. Certainly, agricultural chemicals could be an example. Again, I understand there are times when you're going to need a chemical product to save your crop, but there's so many, so many opportunities with organic and regenerative agriculture right now that that is a direction we should be taking a lot more seriously. So, one more story to talk about real quickly, and in, okay, so, and this is the one I, I want to focus on in my blog this week too, even though I've talked about it only a little bit here. But okay, so what what are Iowa Republicans thinking? with this kind of proposal. Now, this is a proposal that normally you think, well, maybe Democrats would do this. And in fairness, uh, the bill I'm going to talk about passed out a subcommittee last week with two Republicans and a Democrat supporting it. The bill would allow foreign corporations to own up to 1,000 acres of of contiguous Iowa farmland in order to build 
factories. What, what kind of factories? Okay, bioscience, uh, research, development, um, advanced manufacturing. Uh, they want to build, <laughs> who knows how many would be built, but this is being led by the state's economic development director, um, Debbie Durham, point, appointed by Kim Reynolds. Presumably, she has the blessing of Kim Reynolds with this proposal. But, you know, there, there are 14 states, only 14 states that have some limits on the ownership of farmland by foreign corporations. Now, Iowa used to be much more strict. And I think it was 2017, I believe, that uh, they open the door to allow companies to own 320 acres to build a factory on. And, uh, and now they want to blow it out to 1,000. Well, how much longer before it's going to get worse and worse? I mean, they started looking at the, the number of, cor- of foreign corporate interests that own farmland in the U.S. It's huge. China is, is now one of the largest investors in American farmland. You want that, folks? Do you think that's a good thing? I don't, and, I, and I'm surprised that uh, that anybody's pushing this. Uh, but you look at the list of um, lobbyists who have made declarations on this bill. There's exactly one entity in Iowa that's opposing it, and that's the Iowa Farmers Union. Even the Iowa Farm Bureau, they're not for it. They're undecided. Undecided is very suspicious to me. But if you look at look at all the all the lobbying lobbyists who are for it or thinking about being for it, 70 versus one. So this thing is stacked. Now, interestingly, we have, um, I don't usually regard Ashley Hinson, the Republican congresswoman from Northeast Iowa, as an ally, but she has spoken out pretty strongly about this just last month, uh, quote, citing growing concern about Chinese investment in U.S. agriculture. Uh, Hinsley announced a renewed push again last month, to more closely monitor foreign ownership of farmland across the country. She says, quote, the U.S. Department of Agriculture is charged with monitoring foreign investment in farmland under the 1978 Agricultural Foreign Investment Disclosure Act. The law requires all foreign holders of ag land to report those holdings to the USDA. Okay, so I, you know, I don't know how strong she's going to be on this. She does have two co-sponsors to her legislation, both Republicans in the, in the US, U.S. House. We'll see, but this is just a really, really bad idea. I mean, how much more of our state, or if you're listening in another state, how much more of your state do you want to turn over to foreign interests? Uh, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not one of these nationalistic America first at all costs kind of guys, but I do believe in local control um, that, you know, the to the, if, if you allow more and more of your resources to be owned by or siphoned off to distant interests, then you have basically colonized yourself. You've, you've allowed yourself to be a colony of a foreign interest. And that's where we're heading with this. And I hope that legislatures, legislators in this state and legislatures across the country dealing with similar proposals will you know, listen to, in this case, the wise words of uh, Congresswoman, Congresswoman Hinson and uh, hopefully others who say, huh, this is not a good idea. Uh, we should not be turning over our resources to foreign entities. All right, folks, this is Ed Fallon. We've got to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking with Caitlin Hanley about a fight that midwives are engaged in involving unfair practices. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com.
Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, at a time when big corporations control so much of our media, the niche that we provide here is more important than ever. So, yeah, support what we do. Uh, go to the Fallon Forum website, uh, donate if you can. Even better, consider becoming a monthly sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Uh, contact uh, DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Clipsham says that no matter how you plan or renovate your project, please use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, with me in the studio now, uh, Caitlin Hanley. She is the uh, co-owner of the Des Moines Midwife Collective. She's got a doctorate in nursing practice, and also she's an advanced uh, registered nurse practitioner, a certified nurse midwife. Uh, that's the short list, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, that's right. the short list. <laughs> There's more. So, uh, yeah, I, I've been a, a, a big supporter of um, midwifery for a long time. I remember working on that as a legislator years ago, and it's unfortunate that, what, almost 30 years later now, the battle continues, and... Um, Right now, you're dealing with a, a challenge at the state house. Uh, well, and actually, the proposal is a good one. The challenge is that the uh, the big hospitals have come to dominate the whole midwife quote industry, and it's tough on people who want to be independent practitioners. Yeah, not only is it tough on people who want to become independently practicing midwives, it's also tough on clients who want to find independently practicing midwives, especially when they're looking for out-of-hospital options for birth. So yeah. So, uh, what's the, what, what are some of the obstacles to somebody who might want to, you know, d who's decided to deliver their baby in a natural way? Why would they feel pressured to go to a hospital as opposed to seeking a private uh, a private midwife? Um, so, you know, there's just certain policies that happen in the hospital that don't always support women's choices or desires for physiologic birth. Um, even small things such as requiring everybody to have an IV lock um, in their hand. Say that again now. Have Require them to have an IV lock? Yeah. What is that? So it's it's uh it's basically an an IV device is placed um, and then saline locked so that there's no IV fluid constantly running into you. But if they need to put fluid into you, they have a way to do it very quickly. But not everybody wants that. I just actually recently had a client who switched over care to us at 34 weeks because she said that she would have an IV if she needed it, but she didn't want something sticking out of her hand during labor. And they right. said, you can't be our client really yeah so okay so um of course probably the biggest reason why someone would want to opt for a private uh private uh, midwife is because they might want to deliver their baby at home yeah or at a birth center yeah def it's definitely more homelike mm -hmm. more homelike and and studies support that showing that that can be done safely and that it actually you know minimizes their risk for c-section or operative birth or, and many other things as well so they might feel that that's a safer choice for them physically but also emotionally and and again uh, it wasn't that long ago i mean when back, back when i was in the legislature I, I keep saying that it's starting to seem like a long time ago but uh <laughs> you know the uh, there were no midwives in iowa hospitals and I, I assume that's probably the case in most most you know most states across the country too you could not find a midwife in a hospital yeah, it's actually a relatively new thing um, to have uh, midwifery groups being so prominent in hospitals. And that's a great thing, right? Because uh, clients deserve choices to have midwife care in hospitals as well as choices to have midwife care at home as well. Unfortunately, though, they can choose the midwife in the hospital and get stuck with the saline drip whether they want it or not, apparently. Uh, that's that's yeah. right. So, you know, in Iowa, midwives and advanced registered nurse practitioners are considered independently practicing uh, providers. But uh, many midwife groups in the hospital, even though um, Iowa law allows them to be independent, are still governed.
governed by um, a medical director that is uh, usually yeah. a, an MD. Other than men who might be working as obstetricians, doctors, uh, I, I think I'm probably the 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 the, the male in at least in, in my universe, and maybe in the whole country, that has heard more births than anyone I know. Oh, yeah? Tell me more well, about that. Well, because the, uh, where, where I, where, where I, before, um, well, long story, but my former apartment, where I lived for many years, uh, was the, the bed was right next to the wall that separated me from a birthing tub at a birthing center. Oh, my goodness. So, I mean, I, and, I, and, I, and I, I got used to managing that by turning the fan on full blast and wearing earplugs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you would probably definitely need some noise control. In but I, 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 ha I probably heard, I don't know, I don't know, maybe 100 birds. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, I'm familiar with that experience. And I, and I, and I, and, um, I tell you, it's, you know, and also as, as, the, as the grandfather of three kids, mm -hmm. all born with the help of a midwife and a doula, I know how valuable the service is. And it just seems patently unfair to me that we have now, you know, we've come so far in so many ways and yet it seems like something as ancient as home birth and uh, as, um, you know, as, as, as natural as, you know, as the, as the uh, assistance that a midwife provides is, is now basically not available to so many people. Yeah, I think so too. And especially considering that, you know, there's a maternal health care crisis in the United States where we have the worst maternal mortality of all the developed nations. When we look at nations that we aspire to be like, like the Scandinavian countries and the UK that have a lot better maternal mortality rates, what do they have? They have a lot higher rate of midwife mm. uh, see, seeing um normal physiologic uh, low-risk birth um, and and a lot lower rate of obstetricians seeing that type of birth. So I'm guessing that the biggest obstacle to midwife midwifery being more successful in the U.S. is that the big hospitals see it as competition. I'm just going to lay it out there. That's my, that's my supposition. Yeah, I think that, not, yeah, definitely the hospitals seeing it as competition is very restrictive, especially in how we practice and when it comes to uh, being able to provide care in birth centers. I would say that the other thing that's really restrictive to our practice is low insurance reimbursements. We just don't really value uh, women and babies or maybe even women and children in this country, and that shows in our uh, insurance reimbursement rates. So will, will, it, will, it, will a midwife, a midwife uh, assisted birth at a hospital generate a higher reimbursement rate than uh, than a, a midwife delivering a baby at a, at a birth center or not, at, at that person's uh, home? Not to the provider itself, but it does generate more revenue to the hospital because they can charge for a facility fee for both mom and baby. And even though we use a lot of the same supplies um, and birth assistant RNs in a home birth, uh, we cannot charge any fees for those, um, those services. Mm. Okay. So, and I guess, uh, again, there, there has been in Des Moines till recently one birthing center and that just closed last week and now there are none yeah and yet there are clear there's clearly a customer base there are clearly people who want that service who would rather not have to go to a hospital uh, and yet it's uh, it's prohibitive yeah, I mean, certainly we, we serve uh, people within a 90 minute radius of Des Moines and uh, a lot of them prefer to birth, you know, closer to the hospitals in this metro area and they're having their babies at hotels with uh, midwives in attendance because there's no birth center for them to mm. to be at. So the Super 8 birthing center. Ex yeah. Exactly. Talk about hearing uh, things through the walls there. <laughs> Although I did get right. a really great continental <laughs> breakfast after one delivery. It must not have been a Super 8. Then. No, no, okay. I didn't. No, I don't think it was. Okay, so let's talk about something that might be a little bit arcane to some, some listeners, but certificate of need. Uh, this is a process that... Uh, that would need to be, uh, you know, you'd have to go through this process in order to establish a birthing center. Yeah, and even to go through the process. So even to apply, you have to pay a fee, which can be up to $20,000. Who do you pay that to? Um, the the um, 
the committee. The state? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it it eventually goes into the state's pocket somehow or another. Um, And uh, and then your competitors get to come and testify. Why is that? What do you mean your competitors? Yeah, so so whoever is currently providing those services. So if if you're a a midwife and want to open a birth center, the hospitals who uh, have uh, birthing units um, have historically sent their lawyers to testify about why people don't need your services because the hospital offer those services. So what happened to the free market? You know, that's a really good question because we actually just developed the free market for education here in Iowa on the basis that, uh, you know, competition drives innovation and decreased costs. But we have yet to move that same philosophy into healthcare, which I just don't understand. Well, I do. It's all about money. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, follow, right. You follow the uh, money. And that, doesn't make, that, that, of course, doesn't make it right. In fact, it probably makes it wrong. So... So basically, the certificate of need is an indication of, uh, you know, the, the, the idea is that we don't want the market to be glutted. Mm-hmm. We don't want too many midwives out there. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, you would have to go, you have to pay 20 grand for some crazy reason that I can't even begin Just to, to be told no, because the yeah. last time somebody asked, they told them no. So, well, But of course, if it's your competitors weighing in on it, I mean, it's like, well, what if there was a, a certificate of need process for talk show hosts, right? Uh, and and somebody else came along and said, I want to be a talk show host. Well, you've got to make sure that we've got a yeah. need for that, that there's not a, that the market is now already inundated with, yeah. with talking heads. And so I'm on the committee that decides whether that person gets to have a talk show. And I'm going to say, no, no effing way. Yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and that's what they found is ever since they, you know, back in the 70s, once they started requiring all states to have a certificate of need process, the federal government soon realized the error of their ways. And since the 1980s, they've they've been uh, they've been. Um, suggesting that all of the states actually get rid of their certificate of needs entirely because they found that certificate of needs drive up health care costs and decrease innovation. So, Hospitals and, and, don't have to innovate. And, and that's what you're, and that's what's um, being proposed at the state house right now. Yes, is to remove, yeah. um, you know, community mental health facilities uh, and birth centers from the certificate of need process. There are zero birth centers in the state. So, of course, we have a need for them. And, you know, we're, uh, you know, almost last in the nation for uh, beds for mental health and uh, psychiatry. So if, if this legislation were to pass and the, uh, and the certificate of need requirement was removed for mid- midwiferies, could you or someone else for that matter just go ahead and open their own birthing center without having uh, some group of uh, lawyers hired by hospitals shutting you down before it even starts? Yeah, you know, it, there's a it, there's a definitely a scenario in which it is that easy. You know, there still may be some licensing and, and accreditation rules that we have to follow, um, especially to be able to get... Uh, insurance reimbursement, but it would definitely pave the way for more birth centers to open and for more women to have more choice in where they have their babies. And this to me seems like a no-brainer, but having been at the State House for a while, I know better. There's a <laughs> lot of money from the healthcare lobby up there. Yeah. And I'm guessing that that money is weighing in against the certificate of need legislation. Well, sure, especially if you look at uh, who was uh, for or against or neutral on the last subcommittee that I attended. I think you would find that that is a very true statement. So, who who are some of the uh, some of the entities that are well, okay? We we'll, we'll assume that the big hospitals are against. Yeah, it. yeah, and the you know who's yep. for it? Um, for it, you know, actually, besides you, <laughs> yeah, right. Besides me, um, you know, actually, the other person that's for it is um, the the lobbyist that represents independent physicians because uh, really, f- okay, yeah. that's going to be a. A decreasingly a, 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 a smaller and smaller group in the in well not just US, right? not just obstetricians but just physicians in general that want the want the legislation to go farther because they have surgical centers they want to open and other things that they want to do um to to be independent of the hospital and you know midwives are definitely not the only ones being restricted with right, this right okay well well, uh, Caitlin, I really appreciate uh, your work on this. Tr- appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. I know as we speak, you're on call. <laughs> so I'm well aware that the interview could be 
you know, interrupted at any second with you darting out the door to help somebody. That's right. And I wonder how many how many nights do you go without any sleep? Oh, man. If we <laughs> ever go two in a row with no sleep, then the other person automatically takes over. Because otherwise you'd be a monster. That's right. We got to be competent for our births and, right. uh, you know, happy people to live with for our families. Well, Kaylin, thank you so much for joining us. Folks, we've been talking with Kaylin Hanley about uh, midwifery services and uh, some of the stuff that's trying to be uh, moved through I mean, I'm, I'm presuming there are other legislatures around the country that are also dealing with the same or similar efforts right now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Great. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, folks, when we come back, uh, maybe some of you in, in the Des Moines uh, metro area who are listening to this program might be familiar with uh, Bishop Morris Dingman. A uh, long time ago, a very strong advocate for peace and justice. Bishop Dingman uh, is remembered very fondly for his uh, stand on war and peace. And uh, his legacy lives on in an award that will be uh, coming up uh, soon. And uh, we'll be talking with uh, Father Dave Polish about the woman who's going to be receiving that award. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Hey there, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to the angry shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business or nonprofit sponsor. Uh, check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Uh, Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays. By appointment, that's Westrom Optometry. Well, I'm in the studio now with uh, Father Dave Polish. He and I go back a long ways, but Dave, nobody else knows you. No, that's not true, I'm sure. <laughs> but tell our audience who you are and what you're about. Well, I am a native of Des Moines and living still in the neighborhood. I'm a retired Catholic priest and have been involved for since 1981 with an organization called the Catholic Peace Ministry. And the Catholic Peace Ministry is sponsoring an event coming up uh, called the Dingman Award. And before we talk about that, who is this Dingman guy of which we speak? Morris Dingman was the bishop here in Des Moines. He came in 1968 and was our bishop into the uh, 80s, died in 1992, a few years after having had a stroke. He was, uh, he was an incredible man, uh, certainly a, a, someone who, um, coming out of the time of the uh, Second Vatican Council in the Catholic Church, saw the church as, um, saw his faith as something that was, was meant to be lived and shared. He certainly was involved very much in ecumenical efforts and also with a lot of social justice, a lot of social justice things, one of which very strongly was uh, with regard to, to, to peace and, uh, and nuclear disarmament. In fact, over the years, every, uh, every August, he would uh, publish a letter um, on the anniversaries of the time of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki calling for uh, an end to uh, the, uh, um, even the existence of nuclear weapons. 
and uh, was present for some demonstrations at Offutt Air Force Base mm. in Omaha against uh, nuclear weapons. Some of the uh, some of the demonstrations at which people were arrested for refusing to back away from the uh, front gate. Yes, exactly. But he, he never went quite that far. He did not. Uh, we think that probably he would have, along with maybe one or two of his fellow like-minded bishops, but he unfortunately suffered a stroke, and mm. uh, which debilitated him and mm. ended his career as a bishop. Well, I, I, I do have fond memories of Bishop Dingman, including... Uh, I, I remember meeting him for the first time, and I was just shocked. He said he and he heard a little bit about the work I was doing for peace uh, back in the uh, '80s. And he said, "Well, you should come join me for breakfast." And I thought, "Oh man, what an honor! Why would the why would the bishop invite me to breakfast?" I, I later learned that he invited everybody to breakfast, but I, it was a one-on-one breakfast. And I am um, I'm not I'm not a big fan of 7 a.m. meetings, <laughs> and I managed to oversleep and stood up the bishop. One of my one of my main uh, call, claims to fame is that I stood up a bishop, uh, but when I find when I he was kind enough to reschedule and I, when I went back I, I felt a little bit better because uh, during our breakfast he a couple times nodded off, <laughs> so it wasn't just me that was uh, averse to seven o'clock meetings. But he kept a tough schedule. When I was a seminarian, I had a job one summer. Um, mowing the grass at the what at that time was a bishop's mansion which shortly thereafter he, right. he, he got had rid of sold it. he, got, he rid got rid of, of it and uh he would come back sometime for lunch and eat with the cheap help which was me uh <laughs> and that, that 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 slayed me at that time but he was right. just uh you know a very common person but a person of great uh great courage so for the past 25 years there has been an award in his honor called the bishop dingman peace award and uh, every year it's awarded to somebody doing good work. And this year it's going to uh, Carla Dawson. It is. Carla is, uh, well, as we were talking about Carla, she's certainly a, f- a force to be reckoned with. I remember when she, I, I used to live next door to the Des Moines Catholic Worker. And I remember when she arrived as a homeless person. And she was uh, brash uh, and rude. Uh, <laughs> and, and some were saying, well, I wonder when this one's going to leave. And then she never left. She became a staff person. She became the the lifeblood of that community. In fact, you know, yeah, very powerful person and uh, one who was an advocate for those who were down and out. Yeah. Certainly, people that uh, needed a, a shelter, needed uh, some assistance, and yes, she she gave so much to uh, to the worker there and to the people who who came for assistance. She also um, not only uh, was working with the Des Moines Public School System, but ultimately uh, went back to school, got a degree, and became a teacher. Hmm. And so right. she, uh, she was embedded in, in the public school system and just a variety of, of different, uh, different organizations and causes. But she ended up back at the Catholic Worker, but not in Des Moines. She uh, ultimately moved from here and out to the East Coast, but is is uh, coming back to to uh, for this award. And she's with the New York City Catholic Worker, correct? Which I, is the original Catholic Worker House. The original Worker House yeah. is in New York City. Founded by Dorothy Day back in the 1920s or 30s, I believe. Yeah, during yeah. that period. Um, Dorothy Day was an amazing woman. There is a quotation here, if I can spot it. Uh, one of the people that was involved with the Catholic worker here in Des Moines said this, Carla Dawson is an Iowa native who has spent her life comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable <laughs> in the tradition of Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker movement. Yeah, that about sums it up. And so, again, every every March or April, there is an award ceremony, and this year it's going to be when? We are having this on this coming Saturday. It is March fourth. March fourth. Okay. It's at Holy Trinity Catholic Church in Des Moines, Beaverdale. That's, that's up in uh, the, the northwest side of Des Moines. Exactly, and uh, as has been the past, we will have a gathering, social time, uh, starting at six p.m., and we will have uh, hors d'oeuvres and desserts, all the food you ever needed. Um, and at seven thirty, we will begin the program. And uh, we've designed this over the years. First of all, it was a as a you know we we figured we needed some kind of a major fundraiser, mm-hmm. and uh, and in doing that we decided we wanted to um, 
honor somebody who was involved with the work of oh, peace so and justice. So it's all about money, Dave. It's all about. <laughs> I'm teasing you. <laughs> staying alive. That's what it's about. <laughs> we have a part-time director, and we scrimp and save. Yes, I know. You're, the Catholic Peace Ministry is a local group, and it's much like most local groups. Just you know, if if they even have a staff person, it's uh, it's minimally paid. Yeah. And it's a struggle to make ends meet. And we are independent, and at this point we are ecumenical in our board. Uh, hmm. Kathleen McQuillan, who is our director, uh, has been notable in this area for years and years with the American Friends Service Committee mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, much of what we do is is to bring people together. That's why we have a long period of a social. Uh, it's kind of a pep rally, if you will, right. a time to get together and uh uh, just enjoy each other, but also interact with a lot of people who are uh, like-minded mm-hmm. social justice advocates. So we do that part of it. We have uh, an award. We also bring in from wherever um, speakers that can uh, feed us, enliven yeah. us. And then one of those is uh, Johnny uh, Zakovich. He's the uh, director of uh, Pax Christi, I believe. Pax Christi USA. It's actually an international organization. It uh, at one time, he worked overseas with Pax Christi, but today he's, he's in the U.S. Pax Christi, uh, a little bit of Latin for any scholars that might be out there, of course, <laughs> means peace of Christ. Right. Um, and uh, they have been involved, active for well over 50 years, I think, uh, in, in peace work. And what's, in, what's the uh, topic of, uh, of the speech that uh, Zakovich is going to give? His topic is uh, very interesting. The revolution will not be evangelized. Okay, that's kind of a play on the revolution will not be televised. um, And uh, he, obviously, because of all that goes on in the world right now and all the things that uh, we've been concerned with, uh, it could change by the time he gets here. uh, Sure. Now, I I know, again, Carla Dawson, her work here in Des Moines was largely, at least at first, uh, before becoming a teacher, uh, before we, being in the public school system, was through the Catholic Worker. Uh, and and she's now with the New York City Catholic Worker, again, often called the Mother House. You know, interesting for, I mean, there are Catholic Worker communities all over the country. There's uh, There used to be one in Dubuque, Iowa, one in Davenport, Iowa. I know there's a very, very active and effective one in Iowa City. There's also a Catholic Worker farm down in South Central Iowa. Malloy. Yeah. Population 23. 23, right? The booming population. And there, there, again, I know there's a Catholic worker in Duluth, Minnesota, Washington, D.C. But what's interesting to me is that it's very, um, uh, it's very non-hierarchical. You, know, you don't have to say, hey, I want to found a Catholic worker community in my town. What application do I fill out? It doesn't work that way. Correct. You, 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 know, you basically espouse the general philosophy of the Catholic worker, and uh, you take it from there. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, yeah. uh, it's very grassroots, very, uh, I, mean, I think I would almost say an element of anarchy to it. They're, many of them are proud of being anarchists. Right. And I would guess, Father Dave, that once in a while, maybe it doesn't work out that well. Maybe, maybe someone abuses the, the, the moniker, the privilege, the, uh, the integrity of the tradition. I don't know. I, I, I can't think of an example of that. But I would guess that might be possible, but to me that's a that's a kind of a, a less of a less of a concern, less of a risk than what happens when you get bogged down in structure that's very you know very uh, very hierarchical, very uh, uh, very oriented toward uh, toward conformity. Yeah, the worker, and um, I am not quote-unquote, a Catholic worker as such, although I've been intimately involved with the worker movement here with Frank Cordero and others who have been there. My brother actually is one of the first people that was part of the worker community huh? for about a year and a half, right. my brother Ed. Um, but they they take pride in... Um, Grassroots is not the word I'm, I'm, I'm wanting. Yeah, I was, but, I was hesitant to use that as well. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, that people should be cared for. They, they bring people into their homes. The Catholic workers live yeah. where, they, where they offer hospitality. And, and again, I lived next to the main house in Des Moines for 19 years. And I remember, um, I, I, I remember one, one, one point of emphasis was that we are not a social service agency. We're not a nonprofit. We're a home, and we let we, we bring people in for meals, 
sometimes showers, sometimes legal consultation, haircuts, sometimes for overnight housing. And I remember um, a guy named uh, Jim Harrington. Yes. Who uh, had been had worked with the uh, Department of Human Services. He had worked in the yes. bureaucracy for a long time. And when he had enough of that and retired, he moved to the Catholic Worker in Des Moines. And he basically helped rehab what is now the main Catholic Worker house. It wasn't back then, but he helped rehab a building that I think was purchased for $1,000. It was, it, was, it was very little money. But I remember a story about Jim being in, the, in what was the, the, the main house at the time, and someone from the state came in to kind of inspect and, and prod and figure out what was going on. And, and they said to Jim, uh, 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 we'd like to see your office. And he says, we don't have no GD office. <laughs> Just barked it out at him. Uh, and eventually they, you know, they made a compelling case to you. Well, we're not, we're not what you think we are, even though we provide the kind of services that some other places you know, that, that do this. They are, they are organizations. They are structures. We're a home. We bring people in. Sure. It's sure. a cool philosophy. Yeah. And in addition, of course, always to the hospitality, they have been very involved in, uh, in peace efforts, anti-war efforts. They're a pacifist yes. organization. Right. And uh, much of what Catholic Peace Ministry has been doing has been in cohort with, uh, with worker people. Yeah. People like the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, uh, Methodists right. uh, and so on. Uh, we have a lot of. Uh, um, yeah. There aren't a lot of us, and so we need to work together. <laughs> well, it's 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 um it's it's encouraging to see a leader in the in the movement receiving this uh, prestigious Dingman Peace Award, and again, uh, Dave, that will happen uh, this coming Saturday, March fourth at six p.m. Is it? Six p.m. is a social. We invite people to that, and seven thirty will be the program. And where well. where again? It's at Holy Trinity Catholic Church on Beaver Avenue in Des Moines. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Folks, when we come back from a short break, Kathy Burns is going to join me. We're going to be talking about butter and a bill before the Iowa legislature that would require schools to use butter instead of margarine. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Lipsham is committed to the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark says no matter how you plan or renovate your project, use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. A beautiful project will be revered, maintained, and valued, and is the best investment you can make for a future we all share. Learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back, folks. Ed Fallon with you here at the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to the Shock Jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or are with a nonprofit doing good work, consider becoming a sponsor. Speaking of sponsors, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for creatures great and small for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, so uh, Kathy Burns with me now, folks. And before we talk about the bill in the Iowa legislature to require schools to use only butter, we got to share this reflective moment from the deepest past, what, 1950s, about butter and margarine. Pass the butter, please, Vicki. Vicki, the butter. Thank you. Hey, what's going on? It's a crown, love. I switched from butter to imperial margarine. You mean this is margarine? Not just any margarine, imperial margarine. Once you taste it, you'll agree. 
sure tastes like butter. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, that is, uh, that to me is absolutely hilarious. Uh, and we are, okay, we are big butter fans. We are. In fact, we did a segment a couple big. years ago where we talked about uh, a little research we did to figure out that we had both eaten the equivalent of the Iowa State Fair butter cow. Right. It's about, what, 600 pounds of butter. And and um, I can't agree with the Imperial margin, Margarine ad that says that it sure tastes like butter because no, Ooh, it does not. No. It also doesn't bake like butter, and it's, it's just not the same. However, uh, I had some big questions come up in my head when uh, Jeff Shipley from Van Buren County in Iowa introduced House File 341. It would restrict in public schools the use of margarine and other products that contain hydrogenated vegetable oil or other trans fats. And that's already passed out of subcommittee. Yeah, it passed out of subcommittee. Uh, uh, yeah, with two, I'm confused actually. There's mm-hmm. three members of the mm-hmm. subcommittee, and it passed two nothing. So maybe one person was out enjoying a, a delicious bagel with a plenty butter of butter. Sandwich. I don't know. But um, yeah, it's intriguing to me that, that this would be, I just wonder where this is coming from because. I mean, I fully support serving butter in school lunches instead of margarine. I mean, margarine is it's a lab product, Val, folks. Right. It comes from well, uh, high, it's, it's, I, I, it's I, I was I was curious enough that I had to dig into it. Um, Shipley cited children's mental and physical health for the reason he introduced the bill. Uh, stems from what he says the state's requirement that schools provide quote nutritionally adequate meals. And uh, there's a definition in the Department of Education for that. And it would also prohibit hydrogenated vegetable oil as an ingredient in lunches. It does require substitution of, uh, of coconut oil, avocado oil, uh, a couple other things uh, for the butter when dietary needs need to be met. Yeah. So I'm, I, I just, I, I really, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to figure out where this came from and why why focus only on butter? I mean, right. if the goal is to give kids a healthy lunch, there's a lot of changes that could happen. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know? and, and and supposedly the whole bill is about the, the trans fats. And there, you know, there's actually some trans fats that occur in in animal products, butter. This legislature is all about dealing with trans issues, isn't it? Well, <laughs> ban all the trans ban things, the I trans guess. Things, yes. Kids. But, of course, different fats. groups came out, you know, uh, representatives of school schools came out against the bill, and they were citing, you know, uh, budgetary concerns. That's a good question. It seems that there will be maybe a 7.2% increase in dairy products, prices this year. And so that's a legitimate concern also because the school voucher program is going to gut some of the budgetary resources of schools this year. Yeah, it just seems like one of those poorly thought out bills, but uh, it's a live round. I wonder whether if folks, if you're listening and you're in another state, I'd be darn curious to know if something like this has arisen in your legislature as well. Mm-hmm. And again, personal opinion, Butter over margarine any day of the week. Well, the scientific opinions actually contradict each other. The Mayo Clinic says that uh, you know margarine's a blend of oils that are mostly unsaturated fat, but it's made from cream or milk. The type of fat found in products such as cream is mostly saturated fat. So butter, of course, is fat. And Harvard Health came out with a, a butter versus margarine issue is really a false one. And it just kind of depends on who's making the butter, who's making the margarine. And so it's really not as simple as just banning margarine. Um, but I had a couple of other, you know, really serious questions. Because in addition to the butter bill or the anti-margarine bill, <laughs> the same representative uh, introduced a bill for prohibiting the serving of foods containing insect proteins, lab-grown proteins, <laughs> imitating animal products, and genetically Darn. engineered products used to simulate where, animal meats at schools. Where, where are those kids going to get their cricket protein from? Well, they'll oh. go catch their own I mean, crickets. That'll be, that'll be part insect of the gym protein? program. <laughs> insect protein banning. <laughs> and also, the same representative who introduced this bill was one of 39 who back in January introduced House File 3, which would restrict the SNAP benefits, commonly known as food stamps, from with the, the recipients from using their benefits to purchase, get this, fresh meat, butter, sliced cheese, 
and bagged salad. So butter, but not for, not for no, but butter is good except for poor kids, apparently. They, they were seen to be kind of luxury mm. items, yeah. maybe a little too rich for some kids' I, I would, blood. I would love to hear from Shipley as to what his rationale for this bill is. It's, I hope we it's, can it's kind of, it's, faci- it's fascinating in a way, but mm-hmm. uh, reminds us of a conversation we had a long time ago about butter being better than margarine. Anyway, that's our take. Personally, on it. yes. I'm not sure for schools. Right. Kathy, thanks for joining us, folks. And thanks to our guests today, Caitlin Hanley and Father Dave Polish. Thanks also to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music. Folks, we'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.